Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There is nothing new under the sun. That refrain from the book of Ecclesiastes, it can sound humbling, it can sound depressing, it can sound reassuring, depending on how or maybe when you hear it. There's nothing new under the sun. For all of our desires, our efforts, our temptations to believe that there is something unique or something uniquely important about the times or the situations that we live in, at the end of the day, we cannot get away from the fact that while their particulars may be new, their underlying dynamics are as old as time. There is nothing new under the sun. It is news to precisely no one that we are living in a time of intense conflict and division and polarization in our country. It's true religiously as much as it is politically or economically, let alone where those three things overlap. And while there may be unique contours to the division and polarization that we face right now in our country, our reading from Acts this morning reminds us that really there is nothing new under the sun. Conflict, division, and polarization were something that the early church experienced as much as we do. As we are continuing to walk through this Easter season, we're now in the fifth Sunday of Easter, we're thinking about what it looks like for us to be faithful witnesses of the risen Christ. And we're using stories from the book of Acts as our guide Stories about how some of the very earliest Christians tried to understand what it looked like to be faithful witnesses of the risen Christ. And what our reading this morning helps us think about is the relationship between conflict and division and being a faithful witness. Because what was true for the Christians in Acts is true for us as well. There is nothing new under the sun. So a little bit of of context for today's story, and you may want to flip to it in your worship guide. This is a continuation of last week's reading. So you may remember that last week, Paul and Barnabas were in the city of Antioch in the region of Pisidia. It was a large city with a large Jewish population. They'd gone into the synagogue and they had started to talk about the great story that God was telling from creation through the fall and then the redemption that Jesus was bringing. They told how Jesus was part of that story that God's been telling all along. They talked about how the leaders in Jerusalem hadn't understood where Jesus fit in that story, and so they had him killed as a blasphemer and a heretic. And Paul and Barnabas finally invited their listeners in the synagogue, the Jews and the God-fearers, to take their place in God's story of redemption and restoration by becoming followers of Jesus. 
And at first, their preaching is really well received. People hear this message, this proclamation of the gospel, and they love it. And in fact, they say, come back next week and tell us more. And that's where our reading today picks up. They do come back next week, Paul and Barnabas, and all the city comes out to hear them, both Jews and Gentiles. And as the Jewish leaders start to see these masses of people coming to hear the story about Jesus and how people fit into Jesus' story, those leaders get jealous and they start resisting them. They speak out against them. They condemn the things that they are saying. But Paul and Barnabas see this rejection not as a rejection of them, but they see it as an invitation, an invitation from God to turn and to proclaim the story to the Gentiles, to go outside the walls of the synagogue and to say this story, the story of creation and fall and redemption and restoration, this story is for everybody. Paul quotes Isaiah and says, for the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul and Barnabas know that it has been God's intention from the beginning to bring all of the people in the world into his story. And Paul and Barnabas know that they have now been sent to proclaim this message to the Gentiles. And so the Gentiles hear this. They hear that there is a place for them in God's story of mercy and grace and love. And they respond with tremendous joy. Just think, in a world, in a society that was so filled by everyone having their own gods, and it was always a contest between the gods to see who was the greatest and who was the most powerful. Here, Paul and Barnabas were preaching a message that said, the love and the grace and the mercy of the God of Israel are for everyone. Everyone belongs. And this was incredibly good news. And Luke writes that as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. This language of being appointed to eternal life is important here. It's speaking of God's sovereignty over those who are coming to believe Jesus and to follow him. This is Luke's way of saying it was God's plan and God's intention and desire for the Gentiles as well to come into the family of God when they chose to believe the news that was given them. So the Gentiles respond to this proclamation of the gospel with great joy and enthusiasm, and they become believers of Jesus. And how do the Jewish leaders respond? They respond with resistance and by fomenting conflict and rebellion. Luke says, the leaders stirred up devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. So note what these Jewish leaders don't do. They don't go to Paul and Barnabas and say, we have a problem with the theology that you're teaching. Can we sit down and search the scriptures together and see if we can come to some sort of mutual understanding? (laughs) Sad that that's funny, but it's true. 
They instead go to other people and try to bring them into the fight. They go to the powerful people, the women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they say, we're going to get you on our side against those guys. If you're familiar at all with the uh, psychology of family systems, this is what we call triangulation, when you bring somebody else in to do your dirty work for you, basically. The leaders don't address the conflict head on. They pull other people in to be their fighters by proxy. They create factions. They have powerful people exert influence. If you thought ugliness in Washington was anything new, there is nothing new under the sun. And so these leaders drive Paul and Barnabas out of the city. They literally run them out of town. And so Paul and Barnabas go to the city of Iconium, which is about 90 miles away. And what happens in Iconium is pretty much the same thing. Paul and Barnabas go into the synagogue. They teach, they proclaim this message of the gospel, and lots of Jews and Gentiles in the synagogue believe. But the ones who don't believe aren't content to just not believe. They have to create a conflict about it. And so Luke writes, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So again, we see this impulse on the part of the leaders of the community to either to resist either um, just sort of living and let, let, let live or to face the conflict directly. Instead, they also draw other people into the conflict, trying to get numbers and influence and power on their side. And I think Luke wants us to note here what strange bedfellows these are that the Jewish leaders who are usually so concerned with keeping their distance from the Gentiles, with maintaining their ritual purity, their faith purity, they have gone not to other Jews, but to the Gentiles to try to fight against the apostles and followers of Jesus. This is a great instance of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I want us to note a couple things about what happens when Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch and in Iconium. One of the things is that the proclamation of the gospel is always compelling. So in both Antioch and in Iconium, great numbers of people believe. The good news that Paul and Barnabas are teaching really is good news, and it sounds like good news. People hear it, lots of people, especially the unexpected people, those who are on the edges, those who are on the margins, those who have always been told they don't belong. They hear this, and they respond to this gospel with welcome, with joy, with open arms. They believe in Jesus and they follow him because they know that he has the words of life. So the proclamation of the gospel is always compelling. 
The second thing to notice is that the proclamation of the gospel also always produces resistance. Biblical scholar Justo Gonzalez says, When the gospel is preached in such a way that it threatens existing privileges, those who enjoy those privileges are disturbed. As Luke would say, they're filled with jealousy, and they do all they can in order to put an end to such preaching. So in both Antioch and in Iconium, we see that it is the Jewish leaders who are the ones who lead this resistance to Paul and Barnabas and their teaching of the gospel. Jesus, of course, was the one who preached that the last would be first and the first would be last. He's the one who preached that to be a leader is a servant. He is the one who demonstrated that the greatest power is to give up your life for your friends Jesus upended everything. And the people who are on the top don't like being upended. So it was the leaders, it was the people of influence who were the ones who resisted this message of the gospel that says that Jesus' love is for everybody, that everybody belongs in the kingdom of God, that everyone is given the invitation to be the child of God without any discrimination. This is not good news for the people on the top. So if we proclaim the gospel, if we proclaim this grace and mercy and love of God and Jesus Christ, and if we find that our proclamation of the gospel is producing resistance, we shouldn't be surprised But we should ask, where is this resistance coming from? Is it coming from those who are first? Is it coming from the leaders, from those who are on top, from the people whose privileges will be upset by the upending that Jesus brings? Well, if that's who's resisting our proclamation of the gospel, we shouldn't be surprised, and we're probably doing something right. But... If the resistance of our proclamation of the gospel is coming from those who are last in this world, from the servants, from those who are without privilege, then I think we need to question whether the message that we're proclaiming really is the gospel after all. So we can expect that the proclamation of the gospel is always compelling. And we can expect that the proclamation of the gospel will always produce resistance by those who have the most to lose because of it. But if this resistance to the gospel among those of power and privilege and prestige, if it is to be expected in the face of our faithful witness to the risen Christ, well then how should we respond when we encounter that resistance? Chapter 14, verse 3 says this. After it describes the resistance that Paul and Barnabas have encountered, Luke writes, So they, Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. What do Paul and Barnabas do in the face of resistance? They remain for a long time. 
They don't give up. They haven't been kicked out, so they just keep showing up. They knew that they had been sent by God on this mission, and they weren't going to leave it until God told them to. So they remain for a long time, and they speak. How do they speak? They speak boldly for the Lord. But what they speak is a message of grace. I think the ESV translation that we read is a little confusing here, and the NIV is a little bit more clear. It says, So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. So what God does is he pours out his spirit on these apostles, allowing them to do signs and wonders as a way of confirming the message of God's grace that they are proclaiming, even in the face of opposition. Paul and Barnabas don't say, sorry guys, you're out. They don't entrench themselves. They don't pour forth judgment. They don't try to recruit people onto their side like the other guys had recruited people onto their side. They didn't do any of the divisive or defensive things that they could have done. They just kept preaching the message of grace. And God confirmed that that was the teaching he wanted them to teach by pouring out his spirit and his power on them. The message of grace will always prompt resistance because the expansive love and mercy of God will always be anathema to those who want to draw boundaries and boxes around it. We see this in what I think is both a true and funny way, way back in the book of Jonah. Jonah, of course, has been called by God to go to Nineveh, this great city, and to proclaim the judgment of God so that they will repent. And Jonah says, no thanks, I'll go anywhere but there. Takes off in a boat. By the way, if you're going to Nineveh from Palestine, there should be no boats involved. But he goes in a boat because he's going in the other direction. God creates a storm. Noah jumps overboard, followed by the fish, spit out, you know, the whole story. Eventually, Jonah gets it, through, gets it through his thick head. He goes to Nineveh. He proclaims what God has given him to teach, and the Ninevites repent. At the end of chapter 3, when God saw what they did, the Ninevites, and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I know that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah said, you sent me to preach repentance so you could show mercy and grace. They repented. You showed mercy and grace. It's the last thing I wanted you to do, God. I don't like those people. (laughs) The message of grace and mercy of God will always prompt resistance 
from those who want to keep that mercy and grace and love contained in in their boxes. But when we meet this resistance, like Paul and Barnabas, we're not to meet resistance with defensiveness, even with really engagement, with trying to win the argument. We are to meet this resistance with the message of grace, continuing to speak the message of grace, working spirit-empowered healing in people's lives, and with persistence as we spread the gospel of God's love and mercy. As Jonah shows us, that is a tall order. It is hard to continually live out the message of grace and mercy and love in the face of opposition. So how do we do it? How did Paul and Barnabas do it? Were they just exceptionally strong people? Did they just grit their teeth every morning and say, come heck or high water, I'm going to do this? I don't think so. I don't think that's how you preach the mercy and love of God. I think you preach the mercy and love of God in the face of resistance by dwelling in the mercy and love of God yourself. I think this is what Paul and Barnabas did. Paul and Barnabas knew firsthand Jesus. They knew Jesus and they knew his love. The love that would knock Paul out of his church-persecuting ways and call him to become Jesus' very own apostle. The love that would take Jesus to the cross and the tomb and then out again. Paul and Barnabas were steeped in the love and the mercy of God. And that, I believe, is how they were able to continue to proclaim that love and mercy and grace day in and day out. I think it's how we do it too. And being steeped in the love and the mercy of God is not just a matter of things that we tell ourselves. It's a matter of things that we experience. Just like in any relationship with someone you love, you spend time with them enjoying their love and loving them in return, and our relationship with God is no different. God wants us to spend time with him just enjoying being loved by him, experiencing his love, and then loving him in return. When we are steeped in the love and the mercy and the grace of God, that is what allows us and compels us to continue to preach that love and mercy and grace, no matter what resistance may come our way. There is nothing new under the sun. Resistance, division, polarization, none of it is new. But neither is the mercy and the love of God. So let's rest in and proclaim that unchanging, boundary-bursting love and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.